Welcome to The Convergence Podcast. The Convergence is a space designed for university and college students, post-secondary students, and young adults to explore and deepen their faith. It's a space to think, question, doubt, and hopefully, ultimately, to worship. So glad you're here. Hey, hey, welcome back to the podcast. Have you ever thought about if or how God could interact with science? Do God and science have beef? Does the thought of a divine conductor orchestrating creation song intrigue you? Well, you're listening to the right podcast. In this episode, we explore this exact intersection of God, faith, science, and more. Let's listen in on how can I know about the world, God and science, with John Mansloden, a pastor here in Calgary, and the author of the new book, God Speaks Science. We hope this episode stirs your imagination to encounter God even in the sciences. Well, hey, everyone. Thanks for uh, coming tonight. Before I get into the... uh talk informal. Uh, Three comments to set the context. First, I want to acknowledge that the book that you're going to get, God Speaks Science, is a direct product of the vision of Sir John Templeton, who started a foundation, big foundation in the States, that funds uh, people having conversations around the intersection of faith and science. And so I got a call from Regent College 15 years ago saying, you want to come out? We got some Templeton monies. We're going to look at this. And I said yes, and that got the ball rolling. I became a bit of an addict for getting grants, sub-grants from the Templeton Foundation. I can stop any time. But I've done five different projects now, Um, always doing the same thing, looking at the intersection of science and faith in the context of preaching, which became the foundation of the book. Second comment for tonight is uh, I'm going to talk about the ideas, and not all of them, a few of them, but in a very kind of personal and relational way, kind of applying what I've learned through all this through the lens of my life. And so if it, yeah, it doesn't feel science-y enough, uh, it's intended to not be too science-y because you guys are human beings, and I thought, why not connect this to all of us as human beings? And then third thing, uh, the worldview out of which uh, the book was written and all these sermons were preached is an expressly Christian one. So I don't know if everybody's tracking with that or might be on different places in terms of what that means in their lives. So it'll be expressly Christian, spoken to people uh, who are into the worldview. Um, But if you're here listening, uh, you can do the math and apply it to your context as well, I hope. Two weeks from now, I'm going to be in New York City talking with Islamic scholars and rabbis and Christians about creation as a universal text, which was John Templeton's gig, and and does it really read as revelation in other world faiths, and even with atheists there. So I'll answer the question about whether the math can be done in a month from now. Maybe. No, not before our next meeting. But So those are the comments, uh, and that's the context. Back in 2017, when I first sat down to write God Speaks Science, I was in a very, very difficult place. I just crashed and burned out of a church that met just over there in the village. After 22 years of ministry, my operating system had uh, sort of run run its course. My software was old. Uh, My hardware was falling apart. I couldn't manage my way, lead my way, make it happen my way, the way all the tools I was taught in seminary, they just weren't working anymore. And I crashed and burned. And for a couple very dark months, uh, was almost paralyzed by anxiety. And uh, it, 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 it was awful. And it was at that time 
that the idea for this book and some of what started to fill the chapters started to be articulated through my writing. God Speaks Science, the book you're going to get a copy of, was born out of a time of profound weakness and brokenness. And in a very real sense, what I was writing about, about God's revelation through creation, what we were just singing about, about God's revelation through creation, saved me. Comforted me, encouraged me, strengthened me, lifted me up out of the pit, and ended up filling my life, surrounding my life in a way that only creation can do with parables, physical parables, in a way that, yeah, God's beautiful way of bringing wholeness and restoration. Anyway, looking back, it was as though, I didn't really understand it fully then, but it was as though Jesus, the one we sang about, enthroned, sitting at the right hand of God, was pulling the veil back and showing me just how much he had to do with all of this. And I grew up in a church that talked a lot about how much he had to do with all of this, but this was more than that. Showing me more of who he really is, and my deepest passion is to know him more. That's it. So if I want to know him more, I'm going to read my Bible from cover to cover and again and again and again. And I'm going to read God's other book, too, God's first book, Creation. Now, when I went to seminary, um, creation was limited in terms of what you could know of God or how much you can know of God through creation. And so I'd written an article in the Herald about something during the Metallica phase of my exegeting culture. And some pastor in southern Alberta sent me an email saying, this is great. It's good that you're connecting with people in, in the paper and all that stuff. But... But you know that you can never get to Jesus through creation. General revelation can get you to God, but in order to get to Christ, you need the Bible where the gospel and grace and the message of forgiveness and redemption is clear in black and white. And I agreed. I said, yeah, that's what I was taught in seminary. And, and yes, that is true. But I am now at a point where I'm not sure that it it's completely true <laughs> that Jesus can't be known through creation if we have the eyes to see. Years ago, I was giving a talk at Calvin Theological Seminary, and a professor um, who I didn't know was in the audience in a room like this. If I'd have known, I'd have been much more petrified giving my talk about finding God's truth in Metallica's music. Um, but he came up afterwards, and I thought I was going to get it, and uh, instead, this blessing from this Old Testament professor who taught preaching. Um, and he said, I've spent my entire life trying to connect the Jesus of the New Testament to the Jesus of the Old Testament. And what you're doing is you're connecting the Jesus of the New Testament to Jesus in creation. And it was like this beautiful blessing and imprimatur on a way of engaging Christ in creation. So for the last 10 or 12 years, I've been preaching sermons based on physical texts. Uh, two weeks ago, we did a church service on the theology of the biology of the menstrual cycle. Um, had uh, two theologians and a leading endocrinologist in the city uh, sitting on the stage talking about the miracle of this system. 
and how it points to the mind of Christ. And doing all kinds of stuff like that. Now, really? Jesus? You can get to Jesus through creation. But, I mean, I'm wondering if I'm already preaching to the choir on this because you guys were singing pretty wholeheartedly a, 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 a praise song that says you can. But it's there right in our scriptures as well. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through him, through Jesus, all things, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In case you didn't get the all things in the previous phrase. <laughs> and then in Colossians 1, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then from the book of Hebrews, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, you're hearing the all things, all things, all things, all things, and through whom also he made the universe. So other than that, Jesus has nothing to do with creation. <laughs> and I laugh at that, and you laugh at that, but how seriously have you leaned into all that is listening for his voice? And I'm asking myself that question, too, for 45 years of my life. Not too much in terms of the physical universe that was made through him. Everything that is was a thought in the mind of Christ before it ever came to be. John Calvin saw it in the form of the Trinity, that the Father was the wellspring of all creation, and Jesus was the wisdom through which everything came into being, and the Holy Spirit was the energizing, vivifying power that brought it all to life. But in terms of the Jesus part of the Trinity, his was the mind through which all worlds came to be, including your world. The one in whom, through, and for, right now, as he is seated at the right hand of God, everything in the cosmos is held together. Everything in the cosmos is connected to the rest of the cosmos because everything in the cosmos is connected to him. But like right now, like I'm tempted to fall on my knees and start crying, right? Like that, that the thought of this being who you are, Lord. And right, maybe right now for you, right? Like you're stressed. You're a student, you're, you're, you're living in relationships, something has happened that's still hurting. Like right now, knowing that that is who Jesus is, yes, your Savior and your hope and your future, but also the one that's, that's holding it all, that, that makes a difference. And that's been the brilliance of engaging the mind of Christ 
the whispers of the Holy Spirit, the brilliance of God the Father through creation for me, is that it's, it's everywhere. <laughs> I can't go anywhere. I can't stand in front of you in this room <laughs> and not be reminded of the truth of his revelation through your kidneys and your eyes and your DNA repair mechanisms. Revelation through creation is like a blanket. And you can't shake it. You can't not be in a place where he's whispering to you, to us. If we have eyes to see, if we dare to expect that, ears to hear. And tonight I want to talk about how creation, uh, a little bit, is, gives us evidence of God's faithfulness, God's, um, how God can be counted on to keep God's promises. To, creation is a, a witness to God's universal wisdom and knowledge and understanding. So listen to the words of the prophet Jeremiah, who wrote, This is what <clears throat> the Lord says, He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. These are all echoing those songs. So whoever picked them, that was just brilliant. Um, the Lord Almighty is his name says, only if these decrees, creation decrees, vanish from my sight, declares the Lord, will Israel ever cease being a nation before me. Which kind of means a lot this week, right? Um, this is what the Lord says, only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below be searched out, fully understood, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they've done, declares the Lord. So do you hear what, what God is saying there through the prophet? God is saying that even as I'm holding all of that together, I'm going to hold you together, and I'm going to hold you. I'm not going to let you go. And if you think I'm going to reject you, the second half of Jeremiah's thing, well, okay, maybe when you get to the end of understanding the far edges of everything that is and the depths of all that is and just know really what that's all about, if you get to that point, well, then maybe there's a risk that I'll reject you, i.e., never will I reject you or leave you or forsake you. God is using creation as a witness to his promise-keeping faithfulness. And one thing I've learned through science is that every scientist I've ever spoken to at one point in the conversation will say, and this is where we have no idea. Uh, I, I, we just don't know what happens with DNA, the nine different types of DNA repair mechanisms that happen in your body trillions of times per second as you've been sitting here. We don't know beyond that how it works. Or the young woman who was a neuroscientist in our church 10 years ago who discovered a neural stress-reducing mechanism in, in rats' brains that we now know is in our human brains. Yeah, we're never, ever, she says, we're never going to understand 
the workings of the brain fully. Or the one that kind of hit me in the news story this week. I'll, I'll paraphrase what the James Webb Space Telescope said. Uh, given these new images of very old, fully formed galaxies that we're just taking pictures of, the universe may actually be twice as old as we thought it was. So for that scientist, instead of being 13.8 billion years old, it may be 27, 28 billion years old. That's still got to be peer-reviewed, and the science is new, but they're discovering things we didn't know up until a month, a month and a half ago. And, and diving into that story and the details and just getting curious about it and asking questions, so what, what does this say about you, Lord, and you know that, that you are forever, <laughs> um, and a whole bunch of other things. I, I kind of imagined God whispering to all of the field of science and all of humanity, if only the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth be searched out, will I reject you? And keep trying, you guys, try to figure it out. <laughs> and again, I can't help it. A story comes out, a science story. I'm not a scientist, I have no undergraduate degree. I stumbled into this. I had to have scientists teach me how to pronounce certain words when these sermons were preached. I am not naturally empirically oriented. I'm curious, and I want to know him. And apparently that's enough. So if you've got those two, you can do this. But I can't but hear echoes of things that I know of God through the scriptures wearing the Bible like a pair of glasses. John Calvin, in my faith tradition, said, when you wear the scriptures like a pair of glasses, they bring God's revelation through creation into clear focus. So that you can, it's like watching a theater, Calvin said. You can see these characters and make out the words that God has whispered there. And when, and this is the real magic, magic, this is the real glory, when God's revelation in creation echoes, rhymes with God's revelation in the Bible, and this is that, kind of like what I imagine the disciples in the New Testament kind of did when they realized, oh my word, it was all over our faith tradition in the Old Testament. We just didn't see him there. When those come together, Christ's lordship, over the mountaintop, which says this about God in the Rockies here and the passage in the Old Testament where Moses strikes the rock and water, that those, they're echoing the same truth, that you're the Lord of both of those. When those connect, it's, it is profound, a profound epiphany to me. He really is Lord of creation. He really is the one who holds it all together over all of time. He really is the one who's making it all new. And he really is the one who made you. And he really is the one who's making you new. And he really is the one who's doing all of that. And somehow, the, the connecting of the two hits that point home. So imagine the James Webb Space Telescope, this amazing high-tech, eye in the sky in space, 
whispering, through that God whispering, I've got you. I sang it as a kid in our faith tradition. We sang hymns, old hymns, and there was a hymn that went like this. I'll sing it. No, I won't. <laughs> this is my father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. We sang that all the time, but now I feel like maybe for the first time in my life, I'm living it. So last year, I attended a Zoom call, um, part of a fellowship in New York um, called Sinai and Synapses, and one of the fellows was giving a talk on her area of expertise, which is insect diapause, which anyone know what insect diapause is? Neither did I. You're going to learn. It is basically the insect equivalent of hibernation. Like, has anyone ever wondered where all the insects go in Calgary over the winter? Like, what happens to them? Do they all, I thought they all kind of died. And then trillions of them came back again. <laughs> but they don't. They go into diapause. And what's interesting about the saving work of diapause in an insect's life is that an insect doesn't decide to do it, doesn't schedule it in midsummer. They don't fret about it or worry about whether, whether it'll really work for them. They don't toil or spin. They just go into diapause when the time is right. It's a built-in thing that God has evolved into that mechanisms, the mechanisms that make up those insects, to enable them to get through a dark, cold, scarce, empty season existentially threatening season. So God gave insects diapause. And we're talking in October now, so it is happening right now, has been for the last month or so in our city in this kind of way. I wrote this in the Herald last year at this time. Right now, trillions of insects in our city are waterproofing their pupa shells to conserve H2O, antifreezing their bodies to lower their freezing point, slowing cell activity as a kind of metabolic arrest, lowering oxygen consumption to nearly imperceptible levels, storing fat, emptying their guts of anything that could freeze, and undergoing a myriad of genetic changes. Right now, a miracle is playing out all around us and we, that we had no idea about. As a faith leader, I thank God for this providential insect parable. If God cares for the insects he made by giving them this beautiful evolutionary gift of diapause, of course God will care for us. Could it be that even as insects are able to read the signs, less light, less food, colder temperatures, and change accordingly, that we too have built-in, intuitive, God-given capacities to get ready? And that just seems to really hit home even this week, right, and this year, and all, the, all of these years since this post-pandemic hangover, just can't shake it, right? And the world is, what is going on in our world? And the wars and rumors of wars and the environment and the economy and the anxiety and the uncertainty and the stress. 
And the feelings, this liminal sense of being between things and we're dislocated and we're not quite there. We haven't landed yet in the place that we're headed to. And to be honest, it does feel like a winter is upon us and that the days, some days are feeling like they're getting shorter and shorter. But what if like diapause, all that happening in you and whatever, I can't even name it, right? But the, the isness of that in us is a preparation. What, what if we're supposed to be a little bit freaked out because there's an existential thing? Life might be a bit harder for a little while. Not just food prices, but who knows, right? Environmentally, who knows? Maybe, maybe it's God's built-in way of getting our attention, emptying our guts and waterproofing ourselves and, so that we can make it through what lies ahead. And what I love about the insect thing is that God did that like over a long time, right? The capacity to do that. And maybe for some of us, God has done that over a long time by putting you in a faith community that gave you tools and an opportunity for this faith to become alive in you. God thinks ahead in terms of insect diapause. God thinks ahead in terms of how God made you to sense the change that's happening and to deal with it. So neural stress-reducing mechanisms. Jackie discovered that when our brains start firing and firing and firing to the point where we will literally go insane unless something happens, there is a mechanism, a sort of five-step mechanism um, in our brains that basically hangs up the phone in terms of neural activity and gives us basically a neural Sabbath so that we can catch our breath again. It's like God built the passage in the Bible that talks about the seas and the roiling waters who were given, that, that were given a boundary this far and no more to the raging sea, this far and no more to your raging neurons. 29 years old, she discovered it, pub published in Nature Neuroscience. When it came out in Nature Neuroscience, we preached the sermon the same weekend. I got into trouble because the sermon was getting more attention than her Nature Neuroscience thing, so she told us to turn the volume down on the church uh, a little bit. But something felt so right about that. It's being published in Nature Neuroscience, and it's being exegeted in a church or part of it was, at the same time. And what, what would churches doing that more often? Like, what kind of voice could we have? And how could we know you, Lord, more? And what would happen if for the entire time you're walking to your classes, to your work, to wherever, to your house, between now and the end of the month, you thought about the trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of insects in your neighborhood that are now going into diapause that are preaching all around you.
it's not an abstract sciencey thing. It's not even just this is that and oh, isn't that cool? It is personal and intimate and near unto God and life-giving and life-saving. God is with us. God is with me when that parable preaches, when this parable preaches, when old galaxies preach. We're more cared for. You are more cared for than you know. And I've got a pretty uh, vivid imagination, so sometimes it really gets out of control, this exegeting God in creation and attaching it to scriptures and then attaching it to my life. And it did one day um, when I was walking on 45th Street near my house in Glenbrook. And uh, this was in the 2017 very stressful time when the book was coming together. And a whole bunch of creation parables all came together at the same time. So it's one thing to do one of these things and go, wow. Um, it's quite another for all of them to happen at the same time. And so I'm walking at 5.3 kilometers per hour down 45th Street. But then I remember what I learned about how fast, you guys know how fast we're really moving right now, right? Like we're around the axis of the Earth at thousands of kilometers, and then the Earth around the sun at 15, 16,000 kilometers, and then the sun and our solar system within our galaxy, and then our galaxy within the universe as we understand it, all told, probably around, okay, just maybe grab your chair for this part, three million kilometers per hour we're moving. <laughs> so we are flying. So I'm walking down 45th, and I just had to get my footing again. And then, I imagine the trillions of DNA repairs that are happening in my body. And then I uh, thought about my knees. I preached a sermon with a knee surgeon from Banff who is a sports medicine surgeon, and she had taught me how knees, the weakest joint in the body, are able to do the most in terms of a joint, in terms of pivoting and jumping and doing all the amazing things our knees can do. And weakness, bony structure weakness, but lot of strength with the soft tissue. In weakness, we can do a whole lot more. So that preached pretty easily. But I started to think about my knees made in the image of a God who moves. And then trees. We sang about eight billion different ways to be uh, a follower of Christ in the world. Every branch is preaching that same truth. I went to a plant scientist at King's University in Edmonton and said, I am preaching on Jesus' teaching about the vine and the branches, and I want to know what remaining in him is all about. And I, I know theologically what's out there, but if you can tell me the science of how branches remain in their trunks, then if they're, show me that one way, then I'll have more with which to know how to remain in Christ. And he goes, hmm, wrong question. There are as many ways for a branch to be a branch as there are different plants in different times, in different environmental contexts, uh, uh, filling our planet. There's an infinite number of ways that branches are branches. Well, come on, is that not freeing? Like, have you not been a freak about finding out the one way to follow Jesus and to get it right? And to, like, this is my life, right? Like, still rooted in him, 
each branch in their particular plant, but moving toward the light in your way. And if you try to do it in Kelly's way, then that's going to mess with you finding your way, even as you try to do it. So I was thinking about that, and my eyes, and my kidneys. Three million little filters per kidney. Enough if you link them together to reach from here to the moon. <laughs> the kidneys don't filter out the bad things. They filter out the good things in your body and then put them right back into your body. Talk about, mm, I thought they were like an oil filter, but it's the other way around. And the economy. And, and I'm just walking down the road, and this is all happening. And it was incredible. I was held. Only if all of that falls apart will I let go of you, John. The God who wrote the Bible wrote creation. So if you wrote both books, you should be able to see authorial intention and, intention and um, narrative creativity and uh, theological uh, reverberations and echoes between the two books everywhere. Same God. The, the Spirit of God that you sing about and we believe is working in our lives, opening our eyes to who Jesus was, is the Spirit of God who hovered over the face of the earth when the cosmos was brought into being. But there should be something in us that recognizes the Spirit moving in the world, the Spirit of Jesus in all of these places. So God is with us, and imaginable doesn't even get there, but God is so, so with us. As with you as creation is with you. As incarnate as the cosmos is real. All things. And I don't know what it's going to be like on a new heaven and earth, but the Bible does teach that we're going to know him in, we're all going to know him, and we're all going to know him fully, and we're going to know him in all things. And I, I got to wonder if this creation as a revelatory text that you'll never get to the end of will be the, a significant part of us never getting to the end of knowing God more and more and more and more and more forever. Which then means science will be happening on that new heaven and earth. The scientists smile and nod. Because who else do we have to help us really understand the isness of things but this providential gift of science? Get Richard Dawkins out of your head right now and all of those people who take science and go in a direction and step out of science's lane and make science answer questions it can't answer. That's extremism, and th this is not that. I'm talking basic science 
unpacks a world that God made that, when it does, can help you know your creator more. So, yeah, that's personal, and that's why I wrote the book, uh, because George Chaconis, who, oh, I shouldn't say he bought all your books for you. Oh, thanks, George, for buying all those books for all these students. Um, but when he first read the book, he goes, where was this when I was in university? And he had the, a lot of scientists kind of have to hide in a closet their faith. And if you're too out there with it, that affects your ability to get grants and do research and be treated seriously. And so <laughs> that's what happens if people <laughs> knew those scientists were believers as well. Anyway, the hope is, is that the book, if, and this isn't just for scientists, you're figuring this out, right? Non-scientists, this is just for creatures in God's creation. But the book uh, uh, hopefully can be like a field guide for, here's a whole bunch of examples of it, and you've heard a few tonight, but don't stop there. Like, now go out into this world and, and do this yourself. And hopefully, it'll help you all on that journey. Okay, I'm going to stop. And we have time for Q&A, comment and response. And then we're going to continue it in a couple of weeks. But I'm not going to be talking, but I'll be there to be part of the conversation in two weeks. How do, how do you respond to that? Push back if you think it's airing. Just can you expand a little bit more on the idea of the parable? Um, I don't know. I guess you used that many times in, in saying yeah. that yeah. things are parables. Yeah. If you want to just expand a little bit more on, on how you see that in your... Yeah, like terrible I, gave, I gave a talk at Ambrose last week, and somebody had asked that, where do you see that in history? And so I start to answer about uh, the Belgic Confession in the 16th century, and Augustine, and all these theologians who you know, would lean in the direction of creation being that authoritative in terms of revelation. But then when I was done, done with my wrong answer, some other lady goes, well, what about Jesus telling parables? And I'm going, oh, yeah. <laughs> Right? And of course, the book talks about that, right? But yeah, if you want an imprimatur for engaging creation as, as and, and I mean, what, how much did Jesus remember being with the Father before he incarnated? There's a continuum of theological answers to that question. None of it, and, you know, a lot of it. In John 17, he prays and says, you know, help them discover what, we, what I knew with you before I came, right? Um, so did Jesus know or have some memory of the nature of vines and branches that were made through him when he used it in the parable? So in terms of imprimatur, that maybe isn't fully answering your question, but in terms of the parabolic nature, I mean, parables are hard to name, the biblical parables, um, Jesus' parables, to, to clearly define. But, 
you know, Frederick Beekner, a, a kind of an, an askance from a different angle way of presenting truth. Um, not, you know, the donkey meant this, the the, the meant this, the, the, not that kind of a, but more of a catch you. And that's uh, what a lot of people, how they responded to his parables. Creation kind of works like that in, in a parable-like way. Um, and unlike Jesus's parables that could be captured in words, creation sometimes can't. Um, creation speaks uh, um, sound, um, color, pattern. I mean, there's probably uh, dozens of categories, languages, probably 10,000 languages, Christ speaking in 10,000 places through 10,000 languages through creation. So they're different, differently spoken parables, but to the same effect of a, and a, oh my, and a, you. curious about how I got there. <clears throat> Is it just a grant? Or well, no, no. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think before I knew to get there, a theological tradition that provided a framework for the possibility of it, um, and a grant, and an and invitation, um, and this deep passion to know God more, and a pretty strong sense of curiosity about things, and maybe a quick study can pick it up fairly quickly. Um, but, but the moments where, when, when the biblical text just shows up, right? I swear this is why God made me read the whole Bible when I was in seminary and I committed and got through the whole thing for the first time. <laughs> um, that, why that had to happen, because then I would have more with which to be reminded when I would look in these creation places. And so sometimes the most obscure passages from Isaiah or somewhere in the Old Testament that I'd totally forgotten about kind of just show up. Um, so, so that happened. I'm interviewing Masaki Hayashi, a geoscientist from the University of Calgary. I don't know if he's a person of faith or not, but I flashed my John Templeton Fund grant card, and he thought I was a serious person. And so <laughs> he invited me to his office, and I interviewed him and discovered that he discovered in 2009, 6, 9, that all of the mountain tops above the tree line in the Rocky Mountains, in Kananaskis, every time you go, all of those mountains above the tree line hold significant amounts of water. Um, he was doing studies on Lake O'Hara, which is a high mountain lake right at the tree line, and the outflows from the lake were significant, much more than surface water filling the lake. 
could ever account for. And that's when he discovered that within the mountain there are cracks and they're filled with water, these mountaintops. And he describes them as buckets with a slow leak, which are a wonderful thing to have when the environment is warming up and rivers are at risk of running dry earlier and earlier and earlier in the season and snow melts happen fast, that these slow, these buckets with slow leaks just continue to drip water into our Bow River so that we can have life. And it was hard when he described it. I went to Moses and then Isaiah referencing the story of Moses hitting the rock and water coming from the rock. I was driving on Highway 532 on Saturday with my wife and we were doing our buckets thing. <laughs> we can't not do it now. And uh, I said it kind of makes the story from Moses a little less special if we knew that mountains had water in the rocks already. So it could have just been a timing thing on God's part. No disrespect. Um, <laughs> but yeah, that, that happened. I didn't go in there. And, and when I go in there and try to make it happen, it's like when you go into the Bible and try to make it happen, and you do this eisegesis, reading your story into the text. And there's a submission to the text that enabled or made the space for those kind of connections to happen for me. And they happen most of the time, which gives me confidence, because then you're not relying on being clever enough or finding the connection yourself. It, and I mean, you can be the judge, like read the book. And is, that, is this resonating with you, right? Because I mean, nobody's ever preached a sermon on a knee before or any of this stuff. So now it's out into the world and real scientists are looking at it and kind of weighing it and vetting it like a Christian faith community would do with a new book on the Gospel of John or something. And, and we'll see if it's collectively affirmed this mystically engaged, it just showed up. So yeah, it's a weird to put mystic beside science, right? And the empirical worldview beside, yeah, I can just feel it. But that's sort of what happens. And that's where working with scientists, if you ever wanted to do this, if you're a preacher, is really, really important because they will keep the empirical thing online. I can't tell you how many times a scientist has said to me, well, Pastor John, I wouldn't quite go that far in terms of your interpretation of this. And so I pull it back a bit. And, and I can't tell you how many times a scientist has a faith who's always believed that God had everything to do with creation had for themselves a moment where they went, oh. Like the niche surgeon, she said, I thought, being Christian in my job was spending time with my patients and being kind and doing it well. Like that's where I would be Christian in my work. But to think, and we talked about her two PhDs and how God has built tacit knowledge into her arms through all of her and hands through all of her experience to, to, to bring about uh, arthroscopic surgery and repair a knee in a quick way because knees have to be fixed fast in order to minimize healing time. And, and all of that knowledge and knowledge coming together and bearing down on someone who needs help's knee to bring about that healing, how that is a kind of pointer to God. 
And that sort of hit me when she said, yeah, my PhD students and postdocs watch me do it. And they go, how, do you, how, how can anyone do that? And the moment she described how they were reacting to her, I was thinking how all of us react to God's healing power, right? Like, how does God do that? Like, at the same time, in all of us, all of our lives, over all of, like, salvation became a... But it just kind of shows up. So, yeah, mystic. Just reminds me of the radiation physicist uh, who helped me with the chapter on radiation therapy. Radiation therapy has developed over the decades. It used to be they would irradiate you based on imaging of an x-ray, so a 2D x-ray, and then they would zap you. <laughs> so a lot of damage to surrounding cells. And then it went to 3D CT scans, and then 4D, and then 5D taking into account 4D taking into account time, and now 5D taking into account your personal genetic makeup, so they can adjust the treatment to your genes. And when you're breathing and moving, and it goes on and off while it's all rotating around you, and this brilliant technology that is seeing more and more and more and more clearly what the problem is in order to treat the problem. A beautiful pointer to God's ability to see and heal. But anyway, with Jake, uh, he's not a mystic, right? And that was kind of a gift when I realized he wasn't necessarily going to go where I would go in terms of what he does. But then we started to unpack, and you can read it, um, sort of the scientific process and his empirical sensibilities. And it occurred to me that scientists, non-mystical, highly empirical scientists, surely image the empirical mind of God. So what would it mean to know God through the empirical processes? Like the thing that empirical thinkers feel when they get jazzed when they see a pattern. Is that akin to, is that a close place to the God who conceived of that pattern before they ever tripped on it? And so we started making those kinds of empirical connections. So yeah, from this person you're going to get this. From Jake now, you're going to get a little more, and I would imagine that there, there's a continuum, right, in terms of how this would play out. That's a long answer to your question. Yeah, it's uh, out of necessity, everything, because what do I know about, especially these science things, right? And you know, as well as I do, that pastors tend to fall into the trap of thinking they're supposed to know, and we become experts around the scriptures, and that gets us into... So, so the humility of questions, the... The love with, and the tone with which the question is asked in terms of honoring what a scientist has dedicated their life to in many cases, loving what they love. 
can, can exegeting God's revelation through creation, a creation that came into being as an act of hospital, hospitality from a heart of love, can that only happen when you're loving <laughs> empirically and asking good questions, but loving what you're looking at. So I've, I've learned, like now when I do these things, it's mostly help me to be loving. <laughs> because then you'll see the uh, ancient fathers had a Latin phrase, ubi amor, ibi oculus, where there is love, there is seeing. And then, yeah, on a growth curve in terms of the empirical, like just being sharp with your questions. Like I have, I've, I've been foolish. I, I, I met with uh, that former head of the kinesiology department of, at UFC, a former Jesuit, left the faith, started the world's first, first multidisciplinary um, how athletes run and how we design shoes and, you know, those things where they're snapping photos and, like, he, with doctors and, like, psychologists from around the world. The first one in the world happened here in Calgary, and he headed it up. And I went into a meeting with him. I was preaching a sermon on a runner's leg, and I told him what I thought a leg was and how I was going to connect it to the Bible before I let him talk. That was early on in the process. <laughs> so not a good approach, right? And he's, you know, he said, no, you're actually wrong. Um, the human leg, what makes the human leg unique, the isness of the human leg is its capacity to run at suboptimal speeds for an incredibly long time, for an incredibly long time. And now he went on to connect it to us running in the savanna and da-da-da-da-da and allowed us to chase down animals in our hunting. And, but he would know about what's unique about our legs. And it was then that, you know, you shall run and not be weary sort of presented itself and going, oh, he knew his stuff. But, oh, the questions are getting better. Having written the book, I, uh, you feel like you know the scientific mind a little bit more, so you don't ask the really stupid ones anymore. What are you guys learning about questions? And how would that inform this? Tell me. asks a lot more questions than he answers. Yeah. And I think he also yeah, I think it, it just the the question structures the answer hmm. um, even before you've reached the answer. Hmm. Or even before you've gotten an answer. Hmm. You've structured the answer with your question hmm. uh, in some way. And so hmm. the question matters because if you're asking poorly structured questions then you're getting Answers that only fit those molds. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes you want to put your hand over your mouth, <laughs> aka Job. 
Yeah, creation as a source of revelation, right? The ultimate Old Testament book on theodicy and the problem of pain and what's the answer for this? And God's answer is four chapters of creation. Tell me where the wild mountain goats give birth and And that's what's good. That's good. But that, that is unique about creation. You don't get a definitive chapter and verse kind of answer. It's out of control. But what you get is unforgettable, in my experience. And, and again, your intro. Also using the Bible. <laughs> always using the Bible. Always both books. Always together. Um, I think about science as just the art of, or the pursuit of asking questions, you know, at a base level. So it seeks to, to see the world as, as it is, and how it maybe. So how do we wrestle with that? Seeing uh, how do we interpret creation in light of corruption and decay in the world, and, and what place does, and like what what, that how how would that relate to the world to come? Look at seeing God in creation. Yeah. How do you do it with the Bible? Yeah. I'll admit, there's probably a part of me that thinks that supernovae happening in our known universe 40 times a second aren't really impacted by sin or <laughs> somehow they get a pass. Um, but theologically, I, I wouldn't really believe that, right? Everything is corrupted, right, and falls short. So how can you read the creation text knowing that it's corrupted? Yeah. 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 How can we read the story of David knowing how corrupted David was? Yeah, kind of an unanswerable thing, right? Right, which sometimes, yeah, when it comes to engaging God in pop culture or in places that are, you, the, the corruption is more visible yeah. than creation, um, keeps people and people of faith from kind of going into these places, right? And yet, Augustine taught that there isn't anything in creation that's totally corrupted of some part of its original goodness. So then the question becomes, is it wise to go there? I failed on answering that question a few times with some of the sermons that I've preached early on. But yeah, that's the challenge. So I think that's where collectively discerning these things through writing about them and working with others, like you would trying to engage a Bible text, that's problematic. You know, one of the old... One of the ones that always comes up for me that's problematic is the psalm that ends with, and dash their children against the rocks, right? Big problem, right? And it's a, it's a problem. But today, hearing the news about what happened to infants in these kibbutzes in Israel, the pravity in the the most depraved way you can imagine, I could see 
a family member of that infant that was killed that way, saying, dash their children against the rocks. Like, I feel like I, I can even understand the most problematic, for me, one of the most problematic passages in the Psalms because of creation's horrific, the parable of, yeah, but that brings up a good point too. Like, these aren't all, and I, I've been, people have said this to many times, you kind of cherry pick all the good things, right? But there are parables in, like the parables in the Gospels, some have ca categorized, and there are judgment parables, there are kingdom parables, there are grace parables. And so I've preached science-based topics or science, scientist jobs that are doing the problematic thing. So the psychologist who came up and he said, okay, I, I hear you and all this, but what about my job? All I do is diagnose brain injuries that people will never recover from. So how can my job have a redemptive and complicated question, right? And, and we sort of danced around, but at least you're naming it for that family and that person if they're able to understand it. And there's something about knowing that. I don't forget where else we went, but yep. I can talk about it for 10 minutes and not get any closer to a clear answer on that. It's, it's kind of a dance like that. So a couple weeks ago, uh, we met here and had a very interactive time. We heard much more from people in small groups, and we're going to do that again in a couple weeks. Uh, I think that was a very rich time, actually. Um, Bob had done a great talk uh, in September, but then uh, it was quite stimulating just to hear from you folks. I, I remember actually just thinking, um, I read in one of your things here where you were frustrated with scientists maybe just stopping at... Uh, at an initial faith response here, it said in page 44, you said, what truths would they uncover if they pushed beyond awe and wonder? And I started thinking, okay, there's people here in construction and engineering and business, and where is God at work? Uh, actually, I was inspired last year when Sierra, you were talking about how after doing five pages of math that you were just, you know, overcome with beauty at the whatever poetry, I don't know, you had some way of describing <laughs> math and its beauty that... Uh, I went, mm, I would have never thought that. <laughs> I think each of you have different ways, um, maybe of asking these questions. Your question was, uh, yeah, what truths would they uncover if they pushed beyond awe and wonder? And so we're wanting to ask, um, you know, where is God at work in our studies and our chosen areas of, of study and research? So um, I know, Rob, you're not even able to be here in a couple weeks, are you? But uh, Maybe you have uh, other questions you can help prime us with uh, here. Uh, he's a professor of emeritus here in uh, biosciences. Uh, good to have you here. But um, thank you very much, John, uh, for being here and uh, getting our synopsis firing. And um, yeah, I think one of the interesting things of the book, just like. Were you reading it during my talk? Yeah. <laughs> it's on page 44. <laughs> well, one of the interesting things, you know, in our. Uh, in our Theology and our kind of reading scripture, we kind of talked about Lectio Divina and kind of ways of reading and meditating and, and then praying. At the end of each chapter, he's got a Lectio Scientia. Yeah, um, made up so how do word. We read um, what is happening in our world around us. And so it's just, they're very short little chapters. And so I'd encourage you over these coming uh, weeks and months to, to take this book and, um, and put that into practice to kind of ask some of these questions and uh, apply it to your lives. So. Uh, Barb, 
made some ginger snap cookies, which is a beautiful thing. And we can have uh, some of those while we just hang around and chat. But uh, why don't we give our appreciation here to John. Wow. What a stimulating talk on experiencing God through science. In the spirit of this year's series theme, we hope this episode has helped you to ask more questions and even better questions. Join us for Convergent Conversations with John this Thursday, October 26th at 7pm at Brentview Baptist Church. Bring your friends, bring your questions, and even your friends' questions. Hope to see you there. Blessings. Blessings.